Hey, church. I wanted to start by saying thank you again for your concern, your condolences, your many, many cards. Um, uh, it's super meaningful. It's, it's, it's been a flood of compassion for me, my family, the loss of my father. Um, we're doing okay. Um, mom is hanging in there. Um, it's always difficult to lose anyone that you love, uh, and particularly one that was uh, just brilliant and phenomenal. As you can imagine, um, and you've probably been in this situation, whenever death is nearby, it you start thinking about even more consciously eternal things, things related to the soul. Uh, in fact, as dad was hovering in the hospice house between now and not yet, with, with no brain activity and essentially just waiting for his body to succumb or to shut down, I couldn't get a grip on whether his soul was still there or not. I wasn't at all concerned about where his soul was ultimately going to be. Uh, I know his faith, but I didn't know if that had transpired yet. And it was important for me to understand who he was in that moment so that I could understand how to engage, how to talk, what to say. And it didn't take me long to realize that on one level, that didn't matter so much. What maybe mattered more was who I was. And as I imagined what advice my dad might have given me in that moment, if he could, if he was uh, conscious on any level, he would have said the same thing he's said to me my whole life. Be you. Just be you. So I did. I, I sat with him. I leaned on him. I, I, I wept in that space. And I said things like, Dad, I don't know if you're in there. But if you are, and you're, and you're fighting your way back here like you've always done, I don't advise that right now. The doctors tell us your brain is shot. You, you, you would find yourself in a, encased in, in a space you wouldn't want to be in. But if you want to come back, you come back. I'll embrace it. You, you decide. But I don't even know if you can hear me. If you can see Jesus, I would, I would encourage you to run that direction. Uh, that's, that's what we're hearing on this side. I, you know, you don't know what this, but I just, I just did me. That's all you can do sometimes. But that's okay. In fact, there may be nothing better than you being you. It's more than okay. Because who you are in this life is far more important than what you do. We're working through our core values right now. We've, we've talked about the, the worshipful core value, the, the, the orientation that we have with respect to God, him at the center, him on the throne, him above all else, us humbly serving at his feet. And we're now talking about what it is to be relational. In a couple weeks, we'll talk about missional, talking about what it is to relate, what it is to, to be somebody in the space with other people. Last week, I told you that as a Christian, you are granted, given, declared 
holy. It's given to you. It, 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 in fact, it's what it is to be a Christian, to be made holy. See, in Christ, when you've trusted him, when you've put your faith in the Son of God, life begins with holiness. It's granted to you, and then it's lived out. You, you live out of that foundation of being holy. Every other religion, every other good-intended person in the world is trying to become holy. Does that make sense? Apart from Christ, humanity hopes that their life ends with some degree of holiness greater than when it started. And, and hopes that enough holiness has been demonstrated, exhibited, to gain the approval of God and to gain access to eternity with God. In Christ, you start holy. Apart from Christ, you, you hope holiness comes at the end. God's command for us to be holy is not a call to a certain set of behaviors. It's a new state of being conferred upon you. And it's entirely God's doing. It has nothing to do with you or I. Nothing. God decides what will be holy and who will be holy, who is to be made special, who will be taken, and what will be taken from what is common and made uncommon. And he makes it so, completely on his own. God makes his people special. By decree, his people, his children, are holy by association and declaration. Holy is who you are when he makes you his. The Apostle John says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Who you are in life is far more important than what you do. When you fail at doing, it doesn't really hurt you. Unless, of course, doing is what you have determined defines who you are. If you've got it flipped around, then, then doing really does hurt you, but it's not supposed to. Failure to accomplish tasks, to reach goals, is really the unavoidable way forward in life. Failure isn't bad unless you're depending on it to determine who you are. Failure is really one of the best ways to learn. Failure to do to accomplish, to reach, is normal, and it's healthy. But failing to be you, that hurts. That's devastating. Trying to be someone else, living a hypocritical life, a duplicitous life, is a recipe for psychosis and emotional difficulty and disorder and all sorts of sickness. Not being you, or, or, or not at least becoming you, 
the God that does, the, 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 the you that God designed you to be, leads to a terrible life, not only for you, but for everyone around you. You were designed by God to be someone in particular. You know that? You were designed by God to be someone in particular, unique. And you were designed to help others become the particular individual or person God has designed them to be. You were designed to know others and to be known. You were designed by God to be interrelated and to become an extension of the divine community, the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, together with others, being you in community with God and others is life. Do you know that in Ohio, deaths related to overdose hit their 14-year peak this summer? And research shows the pandemic had a lot to do with that. I don't doubt that for a minute, right? But we, we have been isolated on purpose. A lack of community, the absence of places of being known and knowing others is an emotional, mental, spiritual death sentence that can lead to physical death. You're feeling this, right? You're feel We're all feeling this. Please come to the outdoor service next Sunday, October 11th, at Jerome High School. No matter where you live, you need it. And I know you've been telling me that. Mike, we need it. We need it. <laughs> and we're getting there as fast as we can. Please come when the opportunity avails itself. Weather permitting, we'll be outdoor on October 11th together. And then look forward to bi-weekly indoor in-person meetings in November and December. We're going to try to pull it off. We are. When the availability comes, don't miss it. Community is so important. I saw this great TED Talk by a guy named Johan Hari. It's not like an Indian name. He's an Englishman. He did a TED Talk called Everything You Need, Everything You Know About Addiction is Wrong. And at the core of his argument, he says addiction occurs most often and most profoundly where healthy community is absent or broken. Yeah. The pursuit of genuine interpersonal relationships or what generate your most significant holistic health. Healthy interpersonal life is not only at the core of who God made us to be, it is who he is. Who you are in life is far more important than what you do. A guy by the name of Zach Neese in a book called How to Worship a King says this, God didn't create you so he could use you. He created you so he could know you. You are the creation of a tri-person God, a God community, a trinity. 
and God is calling you into a much deeper experience of God and others than just a functional life. Listen to how God describes his future relationship with his people through numerous Old Testament scriptures that are stitched together by the writer of Hebrews. Listen to this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with my people. It will not be like the old covenant that I made with their ancestors. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and I, they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Can you hear it? Can you feel what he's saying? God says, look, I'm not going to drag my people along like children as they fail to follow my rules, right? He says, look, I, I will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Unable to prove ourselves to God, he has to take us by the hand to move us forward. He says, my people won't be trying to prove themselves by trying to do holiness anymore. I'm going to grant it to them. I'm going to give them holiness. I will insert myself into their hearts and into their minds. We will be inextricably related. They won't be teaching each other about me anymore because they will know me. No longer, God says, will our relationship be transactional. It'll be personal and relational. In Jesus' response to the question, what is the greatest commandment? He calls upon this sentiment. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second, he says, is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets hang on these commandments. Jesus essentially summarizes life as a relationship among God and others. A relationship. Not a to-do list of godly or religious activities. Jesus says a good and right life is not about what you do, but it is rooted in loving God and loving others. Life in its purest form is a mutual exchange of discovery and encouragement in who we are with God and others. In a word, love. God is love. Life is love. <laughs> Say it again. Who you are is far more important in this lifetime than what you do. It is. I can tell you, 
a handful of simple statements that I've made to other people in my lifetime that have made a profound impact. And I know this because they've told me so. I wouldn't have never anticipated it. And when I think of each one of those statements, which they have fed back to me and said, this is one of the most meaningful things that's ever been said to me, I can see this very concept. Here's the simplest one. Texted somebody and said, I like you. <laughs> that did something within them that was meaningful because it was an affirmation of who they were, likable person. I said to somebody in the midst of tragedy, you're an impressive person. The response was, thank you, I have no words. In the midst of a marriage being blown apart because one partner just decides to leave the other and the family. The remaining spouse is left with the idea that they are not worth it. I said, I know how this thing is going to make you feel, but I know who you are. We know who you are, and we're not going to let you forget it. I know my son used to play football and was talking to the mom of another football player. And the game was going on essentially behind her. We were just talking this way and she had turned around. Suddenly she could hear that her son was doing something amazing on the field. I, I believe he was literally running for a touchdown. And she just turned around and said, I see you, son. <laughs> Wasn't good job. It wasn't run hard. It was, I see you. I remember how deeply that impacted me. When I was in college, one of the elders of the church that I was in during a worship time walked up behind me and put his hand on my back and said, you're a special young man. <laughs> Never forgotten that. I barely knew that guy in the midst of a God community, in a worship space. He affirmed who I was. None of these statements that I've just before you are rocket science. They're not complicated. But they have to do with who we are. Listen to Peter. He says, you're like living stones. And you're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Maybe it's not surprising to hear Peter talk like that. He pretty much depended on that kind of truth as a mistake-ridden young man. This guy can barely make it through a few pages of scripture without screwing something up. He very easily could have a view of himself that he's no good. But he understood that he wasn't who he was based on what he did, but what Jesus had done. And so he says to the community 
at the time. And he says through time, all the way through all these thousands of years to you and me, you are a holy priesthood. You are a chosen people. You are a holy nation. You are God's special possession. These truths were very precious to Peter. They should be very precious to us. And like I suggested to you last week, if believers, followers in Jesus, forget who they are in Christ, their mission, their job, their role is compromised. Your efforts to love are spoiled and can become toxic if you forget who you are. No matter how kind you are, no matter how knowledgeable you are, if you forget who you are, everything goes upside down. And instead you'll be living and loving in order to earn your identity or find your identity. And when you're doing that, rather than living in your identity, you become quite useless in the kingdom. And now it's going to sound like I'm flipping this whole thing on its head. Because listen to this. God has given you something enormously important to do. God has really an unfathomable, almost incomprehensible job for you to do that has eternal ramifications for others. <laughs> but here's the deal. Here's where it comes back together. What you are sent for, you know, what you are called to do, what you are charged with for God and from God is largely to be. He does want you to do something, but that doing has mostly to do with being. Again, here's Old Testament, Exodus. You shall be my special possession out of all the nations, for all the earth is mine, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God's calling his people to be something, a kingdom of priests. Now go back to 1 Peter. You are like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You, Christian, are to be a priest. That's all. Just, just be a good priest. The Christians are called to be priests and, and do what priests do. What do priests do? Well, quite simply, they mediate. They stand in the gap. They, they, they stand in this space where heaven meets earth. Priests worked in the tabernacles. They worked in the, in the tents of meeting. Right? They, they were in the space where God showed up to meet with his people. And they created that space where God and people could meet. This is our job. To be the tent of meeting. To be the tabernacle. To, breathe, to be the priest that mediates and facilitates knowing God and loving others. That's our role. How do you do that? What does a priest do? 
three things, essentially. One, they don't simply receive from God. A priest isn't a consumer at its core. A priest is a giver. He expresses continuously, really, his devotion to God. The priest gives back to God. This is a regular part of their life, sacrificing and giving. Whether it be in song, uh, in service, in time, tithe, your attention, your mind, your gifts, your resources, whatever they are, everything that we are, we give back to God as an expression of our devotion to God and an expression of his worthiness. We are constantly aimed or should be like the priest at God with our stuff and our words and our attitudes and our actions. We should be continuously thankful, continuously prayerful, continuously leaning toward God. Priests and Christians are devoted wholly to God. Everything is his. Romans 12, 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Right? The priests used to give sacrifices. They were, they were dead sacrifices. And those sacrifices were part of the mediation of God meeting his people. It is through those sacrifices that they were forgiven. That they were made righteous. In view of God's mercy, in view of what Christ has done, as our high priest, right? He says, offer all that you are to God as a living sacrifice, all of yourself. This, he says, is your true and proper worship. Eugene Peterson in the message puts it this way. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping and eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering, as an expression of his worth. Your life who you are and all that you have as a priest should be used as an expression of your devotion. Secondly, priests bring the presence or carry the presence of God. We should, as Christians, join others in their earthly struggle, right? In their earthly reality. We all live in this earth. We all live in this world. We all live on this earth. It's broken. We experience all sorts of struggle and pain. Jesus said it's true. It's life. We have pain of all sorts. We have doubts of all sorts. We have brokennesses of all sorts. As a priest, we move into those spaces, we validate those spaces, but we bring the presence of God into those spaces. We bring faith. We bring eternal purposes, eternal perspective. 
I know in many situations that I've been involved with, with friends who are going through difficult times, the most important thing that we've ever done in those spaces is continue to inspire them or compel them to trust God, that he's good, that there are eternal purposes, that he's up to something, no matter how painful, that we can trust it and be thankful and grateful for what God is doing because God is interested in eternal things, not temporal things. And as priests, as Christians, God wants us to be his presence in those spaces, to carry his presence in, his eternal presence, his merciful presence, his goodness. Third, where we find interpersonal division Priests negotiate and work toward reconciliation. In the midst of someone's personal failure, show them forgiveness. When the, when, the, when the division is with you and they've failed, you show forgiveness. When people have failed one another, they've wronged or harmed one another, we remind them of the forgiveness of God in their life. We lean them toward Jesus. We lead them toward grace. We lead them toward forgiveness and mercy. Priests do other things. These are good ones to remember. They express their devotion to God. They carry the presence of God into the spaces of this world, and they help others become reconciled to God and to one another. This is our job. This is what we do. And here's the thing. At its core, none of that stuff is really action-oriented or academic. To usher someone into the presence of God is for God to be present in you. If God is present in you, and you arrive into that space you have ushered in, you have carried in the presence of God. It's not something that, we, that you're just told about. It isn't what you do or what you say. It's who you are. When the presence of God is real to you and you move into spaces, the presence of God becomes real to others. To help someone glimpse the hope of eternity is to be filled with the hope of eternity. To bring heaven to earth isn't to act like Jesus or explain the nature of God or heaven or to teach biblical truth. It is to live in the grace and mercy of Christ in your own shortcomings and failures. To facilitate a spiritual meeting isn't to teach a spiritual concept, it's to be a spiritual fountain flowing out from who you are, out from your heart and your soul. So I got two questions for you. Number one, are you ready? You're probably thinking no. And if you are, it's because you've forgotten already who you are. You've been made holy. In Christ, you've been forgiven. You have divine affirmation. You have eternal security. Don't get caught up on, are you ready? You have been made ready. The better question is, 
Are you available? Do you posture yourself on a daily basis? Do you offer up your day, all of it, in order to lean into every personal and every person and every situation that is being overrun by temporal values, temporal problems, earthly pursuits, a limited view of what God's up to and of eternity? Are you available at a moment's notice for anything that requires an eternal purpose, an eternal purpose to enter in and be. This is how God functions. All through scriptures, God declares what he's going to do, what's going to happen. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And then he tells and asks and commands somebody else to go. He says, I'm going to do this, Moses, go. I'm going to do this, Jonah, go. I'm going to do this. Isaiah, go. Disciples, go. And none of them were ready. They demonstrated that in spades when they went. <laughs> Just go. The senior pastor where I spent most of my growing up years as, uh, as a pastor was on the phone. I was in the office and he <laughs> said to the person on the phone, we're going to do that. We will do that. And he hung up and he turned around. And he said, by we, I mean you. That's, that's how God functions. Here's the great commission, the beginning of it and the end of it. Matthew 28, therefore go and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Go and be because he's in you and he's made you holy. In Christ, you are saved by, led by, and filled by him. Go and be his servant.